0: I just had this feeling that the victims were basically just like my parents and that they wouldn't know how or why to stand up for themselves and in a very real way to like open the door to like talk to people like the victims that were being attacked were Asian Americans existed in the corners of our society where they didn't trust institutions that we should trust.
1: Good morning, this is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. Jennifer Wu is a partner at a law firm by day with an active pro bono practice representing victims of anti-Asian hate by night. Growing up, Jennifer realized that her parents did not want to be perceived as Asian. It was the 80s and the height of anti-Japanese sentiment as the Detroit auto industry blamed Japanese automakers for taking away their jobs. And much like today, anti-Asian hate crimes were on the rise. As she pursued a career in law, Wu always gravitated toward representing people who she thought were underrepresented. Now she feels it's more important than ever to support her community. Today, I talked to Jennifer about how she began representing victims of anti-Asian hate some of her high-profile cases, and of course, what New Yorkers can do to help.
0: My name is Jennifer Wu. Um, I am a founding partner at the law firm of Grimbridge Wu, um, which we founded in November of last year. I am a patent litigation partner, which means that I service primarily biotechnology and technology companies. But I have an active pro bono practice um, representing primarily victims of anti-Asian hate. I believe that it might be true now, but it was a time at which we represented every single Asian-American victim who had died in New York City of anti-Asian violence. Um, and that's not limited to hate crimes, but of anti-Asian violence. So the first victim, um, which is, I think, in, you know kind of since the pandemic in recent times, was Yalpeng Ma, who was the gentleman in Harlem who was collecting cans. Um, we also represent Guang Ma, who was the grandmother who was sweeping the street when she was hit with a rock, whose sentencing I recently spoke at. We also represent, I think I can say this now publicly, but we represent the family of Michelle Goh, who is the woman who was killed in the subway. Um, There's some non-public representations I can't discuss, but we also represent Eva Zhao, who is the widow of Ziwen Yang, who is the gentleman who's a delivery worker in Forest Hill, Queens, who was shot. So there are other representations, and we certainly do represent people who did not die from the attacks. But those are some of our notable representations, I think, that people have read about in the media.
2: And can you tell me what led you to do this pro bono work? Because I know your your day job is completely different from this. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about what led you to it?
0: So I'm from New Jersey. And I grew up in a you know relatively middle class neighborhood, but without a lot of Asian people in the neighborhood. and. Um, when I was growing up, um, it was the 80s and uh, there was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment. So those of you who are younger may not remember this, but there was a period of time in which the Detroit kind of auto industry believed the Japanese auto makers were taking away their jobs. And it was very, very vicious. Um, there was even the famous case of Vincent Chin, where there was a Chinese person who was beaten because they thought he was Japanese and he died. Um, but no one ever went to jail for his death because the jury didn't in jury or judge didn't convict. And so I wasn't aware of that case growing up. I don't think my parents, like there wasn't the internet, I don't think the paper, like I necessarily reported on this in a way that was I really absorbed. I was young at the time. But what I did know was that my parents were worried about being perceived as Asian. And the reason I know this is because um we had in our car, we drove um a station wagon and you, there was like a big rear view mirror as you would have and like, it was like, you know, red leather seats and things like vinyl, not, not even leather, but in this big station wagon that we had, my dad went and uh, we had like a Christmas tree sort of air freshener attached to it. And I just remember very clearly, you know, at a very young age that so he went and he like had bought like an American flag that was kind of wrapped in plastic. And he like attached it to the bottom of this Christmas tree. And I said to him, like, why are you doing that? Because clearly this like American flag didn't have any scent. It wasn't like for the air freshening properties. And he said, even though we're American, people will think that we're not, we're un-American or we're not American. And that was like the first moment in my life. I remember even thinking about what I look like, right? We we we're Chinese and we eat Chinese food and we spoke Chinese at home. Chinese is actually my first language. But I don't think as a kid, um, I necessarily looked in the mirror and appreciated what I look like. There wasn't this concept of selfies. There wasn't a concept of Zoom. And so it would have been rare for me to really look in the mirror and compare myself with others. I certainly knew what my friends looked like. It wasn't a commonplace thing to have photos of yourself either because you had to take like hard copy film and then you had to develop it. So there, was, there wasn't there was that kind of sense of like what you look like. And I just remember thinking like being confused by that. Like, what does that mean that that I don't look American? And I just remember at the time, you know, other things would happen. Here's another instance of my childhood, my parents, and to this day, this is true. And we live in a very, my my parents still live in the same house, very nice middle-class neighborhood, super accepting, diverse community. But every time the doorbell would ring, they would have me and my sister go hide in the closet or under the bed. They were scared to open the front door. And we didn't open the front door, not for the UPS guy, not for the postal service guy, not for anyone. Sometimes, like there'd be a car accident outside. People want to use our phone, and even then, we would hide under the bed. And so, the first time that I really understood this, when I went to high school and I went to someone's house, and the doorbell rang. And that isn't like it wasn't that common back then. But like the doorbell rang, and I like went to try to hide in the bedroom, and then they went and like opened their door. I was like, oh wait, like you know, there's something there's something different about my family or what we look like that we are scared to look like what we look like, right? So. I don't think it's a complete accident that I became a lawyer because I think that part of my journey was wanting to understand what rights I had for myself and also wanting to know how to protect myself. But then the, this incident happened with Peng Ma and it turned out that, and I don't know if this is like apparent to everyone, but there hasn't been like a long tradition of lawyers who are in private practice necessarily providing kind of all-encompass victim services to as as a pro bono kind of free service for Asian-Americans. It just didn't exist. And maybe that's good because maybe we didn't need that before that, right? Until the moment of March, 2020, when all of a sudden this started to happen, maybe we didn't need it. In the meantime, you know, kind of while I was hearing about all this stuff, I had written a report with the Asian-American Bar Association of New York reporting on the increasing rising tide of hate and violence against Asian-Americans. And that report got quite a bit of press because it was issued at a time that it was real. So like MSNBC sort of reading words that I had written on screen, like, and I was sort of proud that it was getting the press, but I was also sad that it was happening. It seemed like a double-edged sword, right? Like as a patent litigator, the last thing you wanna be doing is having clients who are beaten up or dead. And you know, to my good fortune, when I was at Paul Weiss, um, I was partners with Loretta Lynch, who was the former US Attorney General under President Obama. And she had done a lot of advocacy work for the Black communities. And I went to her, um, and I'd never done a criminal case, but when I got this representation, which happened through an elected official of Yape Ma, I asked her for help, and she basically coached me through my first press conference. But the reason that I did it was because I just had this feeling that the victims were basically just like my parents, and that they wouldn't know how or why to stand up for themselves, and in a very real way to, like, open the door to like talk to people. Like the victims that were being attacked, who Asian Americans, existed in the corners of our society where they didn't trust institutions that we should trust, like hospitals, like the police, like or like my parents, the postman or the postwoman. Right. Like that we we have a generation of immigrants and also non-immigrants whose faith in society is so broken that when things happen to them, their first reaction is to like not say anything because they don't want to get in more trouble, even though they're the victim. So in the case of Yao Peng Ma, when his widow first got noticed that he was in the hospital, he'd been beaten up and he called his wife. Then she got a call. She was actually working a job as a 24-hour caretaker. And instead of calling her boss and saying, my husband's in trouble, I need to go to the hospital, she just stayed at her job and waited for her shift to end and then went to the hospital. And I, I, just, I just point that out as a sense of like power dynamics which is people who are in a position of not pushing back, they actually don't know how to speak up in a way that they feel like they have rights. And then all of a sudden, they're being thrust into this huge media firestorm. And all these people want to talk to them. There's a district attorney, there's the New York Police Department, sometimes the mayor is calling, sometimes your congressperson is calling, the media is calling, like CNN, Fox, New York Post, right? And then there's all these kind of Potential lawyers who want to sue the city, who say, "Hey, let me be your contingent fee lawyer, and I'll go get money for you, or whatever it is." And everybody's trying to help. I, I don't doubt that everyone's trying to help, but we—I felt that there was a role, and clearly there was, because we filled that role of someone who does this for free. Like I am in the incredibly fortunate position of being a law firm partner, which means I don't—I don't need to be paid for my services. That everything I do is really for free, and in fact, I can't be paid for it. Right. Whereas there are people who it's their job to help, right? The district attorney, it's their job to help. That's like that's part of their job responsibilities. You know, what I what we were doing was completely on a volunteer basis. And I think the reason that the relationships, you know, kind of that we we got these was that we treated these not as a way to talk to the media. In fact, it's it's rare for me to do a media interview about these issues. And it's only kind of now, you know, a year later, that I can even talk about some of these cases because the sentencing has happened.
2: And just to be clear, do you did you reach out to the families, or did they come to you?
0: We have never reached out to a single family. Um, we were referred to these families by elected officials, by the NYPD, by friends of friends, by people who have heard of our work. We have no, never reached out to a single family to solicit work, nor do I think we should.
2: One of the things you had mentioned that I thought was really interesting was just how much media attention and like how much people want to help when an attack happens and it's like publicized, like. Sometimes it's just not what um, the families would want, right? How can people still remain supportive and even media, like how can they still remain supportive, but at the same time, you know, give these people their space?
0: It's a really great question. Um, It depends on each family. If you think about, and this is a terrible thing to think about, like if you lost your closest loved one, and let's say you have no other family in the country, you lost the one person in this family, what would you want in that moment? It's a really hard question right? Some people want to be left alone. Some people like want to be encompassed by the community. You know, I think maybe just start with one issue. So a lot of people try to help by contributing to a GoFundMe. It turns out that for a GoFundMe, you can't get the monies out unless you're a U.S. citizen with a social security number. And so it is actually not always helpful to donate to a GoFundMe in all instances if the victim can't get the money and they need a trustee to help them get the money. And sometimes that trustee is not someone they've known for a long time, and you're not sure how much goes to the victim versus someone else. That's a that's a very real thing in every community, not just the Asian community. Our systems of of helping victims are designed to help people who are here, who are documented. We have to find a way to get the money to the victim, recognizing it may not go directly to the victim if they're undocumented. So how do mm-hmm. we do that, right? And we, we're able to do it, and we have done it, but it's it's not as clear cut and in terms of like how to help what i would say is there's nothing better than direct aid like i i can give my money to a victim but when i give my time in a way that's meaningful it's more memorable than just the dollars that are there most of the victims are getting their legal services pro bono from us that we serve so it's not as if they need money for the legal services most of the medical care is covered so what is it they need money for and maybe what they need money for is to understand how to spend their money and how to protect themselves from, honestly, the media sometimes. If they're like at their door every day. If you've lost someone, you basically have lost control. So if you've lost control, I, I think that you want to have control. And the media can take away that control by developing a narrative that is not your own. So in a good example of this was when Wang Ma was passing away. And she was in a coma. She ultimately passed away. We worked a lot with her husband, Mr. Gao. And we ended up setting up an interview with him for The New York Times, which was lovely. It was by Corinna Knoll, where he I, he wanted to have a way to tell the story of how his wife lived in their love story and not just have her be remembered by her death. And you see echoes of that in Justin Goh's piece for Michelle Goh um, on January fifteenth, so just you know a week a week or so ago, you know, a little over a week ago, where one year anniversary he said, I want Michelle to remember by how she lived, not how she died. That it was absolutely shocking to him that all these people remembered how she died and not for how she lived. Right. So I think the media can be very helpful, but the media in the moment of death, because of the shocking circumstances of how these Asian victims are dying in the subway or by being on a head by a rock, the gruesome, just sort of like shocks the conscience nature of the of the death, Um, the media can focus on things that for the family aren't helpful to the grieving process.
2: And what are some of the lessons that you personally have learned while working with these folks?
0: I don't think, you know, I think we started with you saying your work is different for pro bono than not. I don't think it's, I mean, it is different, but it's fundamentally the same thing, which is how does it feel like to be someone else and how can I help? And I think what I've learned is that there's humanity in all of it. Right. And that much of what we communicate is nonverbal. Like one of the moments I'll always remember is that we were at the grand jury proceeding for Gwang Ma and her husband was testifying. And this was a really gruesome attack. So the police officer who was very young was there as a witness. And he reported that when he was about to turn the corner because he'd been called, there was an attack, he could smell the blood before he saw it and it was spilling down the sidewalk. And he was a very young, he was like, in his early 20s. Like, I just felt for him. And there was also a gentleman that when the attacks happened was a witness. And he was a young Hispanic man who didn't speak English. And so he had his own translator there at the grand jury proceeding. But he was going to ID the attacker because Guying Ma was in a coma. So no one who who committed the crime. And he was the one who ID'd it and it ultimately led to the arrest. He came to testify for the grand jury to get the original, original indictment. And it was very brave of him because all the other eyewitnesses as the police officer reported it ran away. Like people did not want anything to do with the fact that this guy was beating and like, beating in a woman and like having her bleed. Like people were afraid for their own safety and who's was still menacing people with the rock. And so this Hispanic guy stayed and after the grand jury testimony, Mr. Gao came out and this Hispanic guy was out there They each had their own translators, like a Chinese translator and a Spanish translator. And I said to Mr. Gao, Chinese, this is the man who, saw the attack and reported it to the police. And he's here to confirm that the defendant is the guilty party or like, you know, is the person who should be charged with this. And Mr. Gao immediately got it, right? Immediately understood it. We had talked to the police officer, officer basically wanted to relay to Mr. Gao, like, you know, how he found his wife and all this stuff. And he went right up to the Hispanic guy and they looked at each other. And we said to the Hispanic guy, this is Mr. Gao. He's the husband of Wang Ma. And they kind of like brushed aside their translators and they just like hugged each other. So there's these moments in these cases where you realize that as horrible as these things are, the people who are there helping, it still overwhelms the people who are there hurting. I know that can be hard to remember because there's a tendency to just focus on the tragedy and not on the light. But when I work on these cases, what I've learned is that there's always light. There are always people trying to help. The assist- assistant district attorneys, the New York police officers who are coming in shepherding the victims to these media conferences right there's so many people there are more people who want to help than who are hurting but we shine a light mostly on the defendant and not on the people who are helping Right? we mostly focus on the defendant and how to commit mental health resources and like you know kind of how we're gonna get conviction and like what happened why did he It's like we, we hear that now with the whole you know situation in in monterey park you know, recently the tragedy in Monterey Park where they're like, how could a 72-year-old man have done a mass shooting? What happened? What was he thinking? And yet you hear relatively little about the victims and all other people who are trying to help, right? And, you know, because I'm on the side of the victims, I've seen so much more from the people who are trying to help than the people who are hurting. It's rare for me to meet the defendant except at sentencing. And so in a strange way, it's been very demoralizing to see these attacks, but it's also been life-affirming to see how many people are helping.
1: To read my full story on Jennifer's incredible work, click the link in our show notes. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Kara Vika. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.